If you want to find your place in the Bible as we prepare to begin the message, you can turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And I just wanted to thank you guys again for allowing us and, and creating the means for us, uh, for Aaron and I and for Mario to go to an evaluation retreat uh, in the next week or so. We're going to set a date for our family meeting and let you know when that is sometime between now and the end of the year we're hoping for. So we're going to update you on some of the specifics from that. But we had a wonderful time and we are just in full faith for what God is doing, what God has for our local church. Couldn't be more excited. We went through a period of time to talk about the different areas where God is at work in your lives and the lives of so many people in the church. And it was just neat to see what God is doing. And so we're excited about that and looking forward to the year to come. If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, we're going to be reading the entire chapter. This is one account and an amazing account. I cannot imagine having lived through this. But today I'd encourage you as we're going through the passage, put yourself back in time so you can just think through what would it have been like to be the first recipients of this book? What would it have been like to read about this, the wonder? And let that wonder kind of recapture you this morning. This is God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and then immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter's standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's food, country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod took his royal, put his royal robes, took his seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is continuing to increase and multiply today. Thank you, God, that you are truly over all. You are over all the heavens, over all the earth, over all rulers, over all principalities and powers. God, that you are, you are over all the physical realm, Lord. You are over all things. God, I pray that you would be exalted this morning, that, that we would see that you are in control and you are powerful and you are working. And God, I pray that we would have our gaze redirected towards you in faith. That you would increase faith in each and every person here. Faith in you, faith in your goodness, faith in your work. That you are not distant, that you are not absent, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would dispel all fear this morning. As we see your overall, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I thought it was really timely this morning. There was a few different things that were shared in worship. Not only did the all the worship songs seem to go with the message this morning. And by the way, we didn't prepare Matt for that, as is never the case. And yet, God just works through His Spirit to be kind, to often have the theme of worship match the theme of the message. And as well, I think the, the word that Colleen had shared for us this morning about people are fearing, I think it's really appropriate because I think that's what God wants to speak to us about this morning is to, to meet us in our fears. You see that Everybody faces the temptation to fear in some way. Everyone faces the temptation to fear to varying extents, although it might look different for everyone. Some might deal with the fear of worrying about what other people think about them, and more subtly, you can see that, that fear when, when you want people to be impressed with you and to, to think that you're impressive. Some are physically enslaved and oppressed some deal with very real feel, fears about their own physical safety and well-being because they might face abuse or beatings. Some here might face the fear of whether or not they'll have enough money to provide for their family. Right now, there's a Pakistani Christian named Asia Bibi who faces the death penalty after being accused of blasphemy against Islam. She and her family are facing a different kind of fear. Her crime is she drank from a cup that 
Muslim women would use and made it unclean to them. And afterwards, she defended Christianity. She was beaten, ordered to convert to Islam or faith death on blasphemy charges. You see the kind of fear that James and Peter faced, that the early church faced, it continues to be prevalent today, and yet God continues to be no less at work. God continues to be at work actively and powerfully in the face of fears. Some face fear of whether or not they'll have enough money to provide for their family, and maybe some face fear that they'll lose a loved one. Some are facing the fear of sickness or disease. Some face the fear of losing a spouse because of marital strife. Some are facing here the fear that their children will make the wrong choices and fall or fail in life and walk away from God. Some kids are facing the fear of ridicule or bullying and some face the fear, hopefully not here, but of imprisonment. Some face irrational fears of being unsafe in the world and don't feel like they can leave their homes and some are so gripped with fear that they feel like they have to wash their hands hundreds of times a day or check locks or other kinds of things. Others are fearing deadly diseases, whether a threat is real or not. Some here may be facing the fear of Ebola spreading to the United States. Some are tempted to fear terrorists. Others have the simple fear of, will I be alone all of my life? Some face the fear of failure. Some are fearing that they're never going to be good enough or will never make it. There's no question that everyone here, everyone in life, everyone in the world faces some kind of fear. That's not a question. The question is, where will you look in the face of fear? Where will your confidence be? Where will your hope be in the face of fear? Maybe one, of the, one or more of those fears applied to you this morning. The question is, what will you believe? Who will you trust? Maybe even more appropriately, who are you believing? Who are you trusting? This account from Luke, it's about the more specific fears of imprisonment and death. But I think it's a good illustration that if if God is in control of the far greater life and death issues and principalities and powers and authorities and rulers, if God's in control of all those things, then certainly God is also in control of the details of life as well. This account, it begins with Herod. It opens up and, and we see that Herod is seeking the praise of men. He's doing things for their approval and adulation, and he, he's seemingly in control. And I think that's what Luke's trying to do here. He's trying to show us that Herod is seemingly in control. And so he begins that passage talking about how Herod is seemingly in control because Herod killed James, the brother of John. He was one of the, the three beloved disciples, Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples to Jesus, and yet Herod takes him and he kills him some 10 or 12 years after Jesus was resurrected. And then he takes the, the leader of the church at the time, Peter, and he throws Peter in jail, and he's getting ready to present Peter to the people so that he might have a public trial and eventual execution, most likely. In a situation like this, the early Christians, they must have been tempted to fear. And it was very real for them. It was not a thousand miles away. It was in their own city. It was their own brothers, it was their own family, their own pastors. 
They must have been tempted to fear that the cause of Christ might fail, that they would be wiped out. They faced opposition from within, opposition from the Jews, and now they faced opposition from the king, and by extension, the forces of the most powerful army in the world. And so I think Luke writes this account so that the reader of Acts would see that God is the one who is really in control. It's not Herod. Some groovy music playing here. Excellent. It's a little interlude. <laughs> Just see if you're awake. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I'm thankful for the sound guys this morning. <laughs> Luke writes this account, I believe, to assure Christians that they have no need to fear as they're faithfully carrying out and living out God's word. No enemy is able to prevail against God and the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I, and I believe that this word is really timely for us today. I think this word is really timely for us today that, that God wants us to see. What's the main idea of this passage that I think God would have us see? It's that God is powerfully in control and he carries out his word. God is powerfully in control and he carries out his word. You can trust God. You can trust God because he's powerfully in control. Are, are you, could you relate to any of those fears perhaps that I listed? God is powerfully in control. Maybe you're concerned when we're carrying out the word and you're concerned, how will I carry out this mission that God's calling us to to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are, who are living as disciples and taking out that mission of carrying the gospel to the world? Well, will, will God be with me? And God wants you to see that his word is unstoppable. God is powerfully in control and he's carrying out his word, not only in that day, but he's continuing to carry out his word today. He's continuing to be, to be powerfully in control today over the smallest virus and over the, the largest economies of the world and over terrorism and whatever thing you might be facing and over your family issues. Luke made sure he included this account in his narrative. You see, this isn't just history. Luke's being strategic here. He includes this account in his narrative because the early church needed to see that God's powerfully in control because they would be tempted to fear. They needed to know that no government, no natural force could stand in God's way from him carrying out his plans. They needed to be confident of the power of the gospel. This, this good news message they've been given they needed to know that whether they lived or died for the sake of Christ, God was in control. I think that's good news for us this morning as well. Whether we live or die for the sake of Christ, God is in control. And he's not thwarted. His plans are accomplished and his purposes are carried out. I think there's three truths that we need to lay hold of from this passage for our own lives personally so that we can have confidence to continue to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus Christ and to, to carry out his good news to all those around us. We need to see the first thing, truth, that we need to lay hold of is really the main theme of the entire passage. It, it's that God is powerfully in control. He's powerfully in control. And we're going to see through the passage there's really three ways that he's going to control, but it's not 
because this is a very Jewish account. It's not written A, B, C, D in, in a perfect flow, but Luke is giving us some general ideas here. He's showing us that God's in control, and he's in control in three ways, and, and he doesn't spell it out, but he does it in story form. And so he shows us that God's in control over rulers and authorities, and you can see that he obviously is the one who's in control over Herod. We'll come to that. He's in control over soldiers. We see that God's powerfully in control over the natural world. They're walking through gates that are just kind of opening before them. God's in control of the natural world. This this angel appears in the middle of the cell and says, come follow me. They go out through them and somehow the guards stay asleep. God's powerfully in control over life and death. He was in control both when James was martyred and when Peter was set free and when Herod was judged and killed. God's powerfully in control. And Luke tells us that King Herod, he was violent towards the church. That's kind of how this passage opens up. And in case you're wondering, who is this King Herod? This is King Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa has spent most of his life trying to rebuild the kingdom that his grandfather had and trying to acquire the same rule and authority, and he's finally gotten to the place of great power, and he's over almost all of the area that Herod the Great was, which was most of the Middle East at the time. He was a political operative. He was skilled. But you see that he has the same kind of evil intentions, same kind of self-seeking, the same kind of pride that his grandfather had. You remember his grandfather, Herod the Great, had tried to wipe out the Messiah because he knew about the prophecies, and he didn't want to be displaced, and so He had all the babies in Bethlehem murdered. And so we see that his grandson is following in the same kind of footsteps. And so he's trying to wipe out any opposition to his rule and authority. Because if the Christians disturb things for him, it would create difficulties. And Romans would come in and say, you're not capable of ruling this land. And so he had to squash Christianity because it was making the Jews upset. And if the Jews were upset, the Romans would get upset and he'd lose his power. And so... He's trying to be in control here. And so one might think, and the Christians in that may might think that, well, maybe he's in control, or maybe the emperor's in control. And you might think today, well, well, maybe the president really is in control of things, and oh my goodness, this this country is going down a wrong path, and what do we do? And maybe you're fretting there. I think you need this message too. You see, God had, just like he planned to rescue Jesus in the days of Herod the Great, he was able to rescue James. He did rescue Peter. Agrippa, he's intending to harm, to mistreat the disciples, to squelch Christianity. And think about the irony here, sometime around the time of Passover. You remember 10 or 12 years earlier to this, that's when Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. And it was during the same Feast of Unleavened Bread that, that Pilate offered up Jesus or Barabbas. And now, what would the Christians be thinking? Now he's about to offer up Peter at the same time. So he arrested Peter. Verse 3 tells us he was concerned with pleasing the Jews. He wanted to make things right between the Jews and him so that there was no troubles Verse 4 tells us, if you look down your Bibles, it says, purpose in arresting Peter was to bring about him out to the people after Passover, after, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
in verse 5 of saying he, he was keeping Peter in prison for that purpose. The situation, it was grim at best. Disciples might have been tempted to think, oh my goodness, here we go again. Now, not only was, did Jesus get killed this way, but he's resurrected, but what in the world? Peter's not going to be resurrected. And so they must have been a little concerned. Four squads of trained soldiers of the Roman Empire, can you imagine that? Being arrested by four squads of soldiers. They arrest him. They're assigned to guard Peter. And not only that, it says he was chained between two of them. And, and what the common practice would have been in that day was to, to bind him with shackles to one soldier and bind that soldier with shackles. And that soldier would not have the key. Neither soldier would have keys to be able to unlock them. They'd have to get somebody else to unlock them. So that in case the prisoner overpowered either of the guards, he wouldn't be able to get keys to get out. So you can't go very far with two soldiers on you. And so Peter is shackled between these two guards. <laughs> there's, some, there's a remarkable thing, this little, little thing that Luke writes, is that Peter was asleep. Isn't that kind of comical? Peter, he's, he knows he's about to be brought out, but he's just sleeping. But I think it's more than just a, a little humor, it's that Peter was resting in God. He was trusting God. He wasn't fearing. He knew who was in control in the midst of him being shackled. See, he's able to sleep. I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm concerned about something, in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, I'll pop awake. I don't mean to, but I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And I won't be able to fall back asleep. And all these thoughts will be running through my head. What is that? That's fear. It's worry. It's anxiety having a physical effect on my body, waking me up. And then I'm thinking, and my mind keeps going. Anybody ever struggle with that kind of thing before? Your mind just keeps going. You can't shut it up. And yet Peter, he knows that God's in control. He's snoozing. And he's, he's, he's napping so hard that the, the, the language there says the angel had to strike him. And that word for strike, it's not like he tapped him. That's a violent term. <laughs> he had to like, Peter, wake up. And so that's not mean, but Peter was fast asleep. He's like, hey, hey. I remember trying to wake up my dad when he was really out. It, it took a lot. Peter was deep asleep, trusting in God, that God's in control. And so this angel strikes him on the side. And this light is shining in the cell. And, and then he says, get up quickly. You think that he might have done that already, right? But Peter was like, what? But this bright light, this angel, maybe he would have responded a little differently. But he wakes up, and then it says the chains just fall off his hands. He gets up and the chains just kind of fall off. They weren't meant to do that. And Peter's still in the daze, and so the, the angel, he tells him to get dressed and put your sandals on. And so Peter, he gets dressed and puts the sandals on him, but he doesn't get dressed all the way. And so the angel's like, um, come on, put your coat on, wrap it around you, let's get ready to go. This is a jailbreak. Peter's, Peter's definitely relaxed. Everything was a little surreal for Peter, I guess, and the angel tells him, you know, put your cloak on, follow me. And so Peter's following the angel out of the cell. He's, he's watching the guys beside him not wake up. He's, this door's opening in front of him. He's walking out, and the other squad is there, and he, and he goes out to the cells, and then it says the city gate. It would have been outside the city, but he's going into the city. And so the city gates, there would have been these very large iron Gates that were, were meant to keep thieves out and to keep the people of the city safe at night. And this, these city gates just kind of come open. Typically, they'd be, they'd be chained 
together. They come open of their own accord. And they go out. And you can see that God's not just powerfully in control over authorities, over the Roman government. God is powerfully in control over nature. He he just moves through iron gates and iron bars, and he opens things up, and he keeps people asleep. He's He has control over the forces of nature, both human and and inanimate objects as well. He's not constrained or contained by physical barriers. There's no chains, no bars, no gates that can contain or hold God back. He's not limited by the natural world in any way. Do you remember that, that Jesus proved that when he was showing that he could make coins appear in fish's mouths? to pay the temple tax. He told the disciples to cast the nets on the, the side of the boat after they've been fishing all night. And, and, and we can see that the, the net was so weighed down they had to get another boat to come over they were, for fear of weighing the boat down and sinking. God's in control over all of the physical realm. And he continues to show that here. God's in control of your circumstances and my circumstances. He's in control of whatever barriers you're facing. Maybe they're physical, financial barriers you're facing. God's in control of those. Maybe the barriers you're facing aren't financial, but maybe you're feeling like these people don't like me or my boss doesn't like me. I'm able to do these things. And you're thinking that man's in control over your life. I can't get a job. I don't have skills. I can't do this. And my spouse is awful. I can't talk to them. Or whatever those barriers are that you see in your life, you need to see that God's in control. He has power and authority over any and all barriers. That should give us hope as we face really very real circumstances in our daily lives. Peter was facing very real circumstances here, and yet God is demonstrating he's in control. He's the one in charge. He's he's more powerful than any rulers or authorities in nature. And then all of a sudden, as Peter's walking, following this angel, still in this kind of stupor, the angel disappears, and he's there with no angel. And then I can imagine he's realizing wait a minute, I'm, I'm in the middle of the street. What's going on? And, and I love it. It says, as he came to himself, <laughs> that picture there, Peter's like, whoa, hang on, that wasn't a dream. I, I'm awake. And I love um, Captain Obvious. In verse 11, he says, now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all the Jewish people were expecting. And Peter gets it. Yeah, God is in control. God is sent his angel to rescue him. From the Jewish people, they were expecting that he would be put on trial and likely executed. And so he realizes he's been set free, that God's thwarted the plans of the king and the Jewish people, and he goes to tell some of the disciples he's familiar with, and verse 12 tells us that he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This was likely um, one of the locations of the, the different house churches, and it was probably a fairly large house. Is you, the word there for all, it was, it was many disciples were gathered there. He's also knocking on an outer gate, and there's, it's attended by a servant. So this is probably a, a very affluent home, a large home that was one of the places that was kind of furthering ministry by using their home for the glory of God. And so the servant girl, she, she knows Peter. She recognizes his voice even. So obviously he's familiar with his house church. And so she gets so excited, she runs back in, and she tells everybody, Peter's here, he's at the gate. And I love what they tell her. It's a very human response, isn't it? They, weren't, they were praying, but they weren't really in belief yet. They were saying, 
You're out of your mind. Isn't that a response a lot of times when God, we see God at work, we don't, we don't recognize where God's at work sometimes. We don't recognize that God really is in control. We don't believe that he really could do what he says he's gonna do, that he's really in power. You, you ever do that in your own life? No, that wasn't really God. Those was just natural circumstances. Or no, that wasn't really God. My boss just got sick that day, so my presentation went well. Or no, that, that, really, that really wasn't God. My spouse just, you know, had, had a good day. And they say, you're out of your mind. But she keeps insisting, though, he's really outside. And so finally, I guess they hear Peter keeps knocking. He's like, hello, I'm out here still. I mean, I, I just love the very humanness, the very realness of the story. Real people with real fears, real struggles, real disbelief. And then Peter's like, Really? I got let out of jail by an angel, and really, you won't open the door for me? And then he tells them about what had happened. He's probably going in. They're probably excited. They're about to throw a party for him, saying, let's tell everybody. He's like, no, 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 quiet. I just got let out of jail by Herod's, you know, from Herod's army, and I had four squads guarding me. There's going to be trouble here. And so he's, you know, be quiet, but tell James, most likely referring to James, the brother of Jesus, who now takes kind of some prominence here, most likely because Peter had to step back for fear of his life. So he says, tell James and then tell the other brothers. And then Luke says, cryptically, he went to another place and that was probably to keep secret where he was going and maybe to protect those who had harbored him because there were very real threats to his life. And so Peter most likely goes into hiding because the only other time we see him in the book of Acts is in Acts 15 briefly when there's a, a council in Jerusalem. And then after that, we don't really hear about him in Acts. doesn't mean that, that Peter was cowardly. It means he was being wise. God rescued him so he could continue his mission, continue to preach the gospel and care for his people. He didn't need to get killed. You see, some people, James was honoring and glorifying God in his death. And yet others are called to honor and glorify God in their life. God's not finished working through Peter yet. But after all, the Bible in, in Acts as well, it's not primarily about Peter or about Paul, but it's about Jesus Christ. And so then kind of Luke does one of those, you know, meanwhile, back of the ranch. And the rest of the passage, he says, you know, meanwhile, Herod was pretty upset. Peter's disturbance, he says, called no, caused no little disturbance amongst the soldiers, and none of them knew what had become of him. Herod was angry. He was, he was out for blood. The soldiers were put to death, and then Herod went back to the seat of government. They couldn't find Peter. He goes back to Caesarea for a little while, but the count doesn't end there. Luke makes a point to tell us what happened to King Herod. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to emphasize God's in control. This guy who seems all-powerful, who can kill James, who can kill soldiers who don't do what he wants, this man is not really in control. And so he tells of what happened to this Herod, who was at that time the most powerful man in the Middle Eastern world under the authority of Caesar. And he says that representatives from the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they looked to him too. They relied on him. It wasn't part of his territory, but the area of what's common to, commonly known as Lebanon today, they looked to him because he traded with them to provide them food. And, and if he was angry with them, they wouldn't eat. And so they come to appease him and to appeal to his pride. And, and all this goes to his head. 
And he thought he was powerful. So he puts on these royal robes, these robes of rulership. He adorns himself in majesty with all the regal pomp he can muster. And, and, he, and he sits on his throne and, and, and we, can, we can see from a historian named Josephus that he wasn't just putting on royal robes. He, was, he had a special garment that was made out of pure silver made for him. And for this occasion, he's sitting there with this, this garment of silver and it's reflecting light everywhere and he looks pretty spectacular. He seems pretty impressive. He was also probably an excellent public speaker. He was raised alongside the emperor's son. He had the best education. He probably really was a great speaker. He probably really was very impressive in man's eyes. But God is not impressed with those things. You know, we can look on those things as being impressive today, too. Somebody looks really impressive, looks really powerful. They look like they have it all together. They look like they have all the money in the world, like they've got everything they could ever want. And boy, how can they speak so well and have so many gifts? And yet that doesn't mean that, that they're in control or that God's pleased with them. And so you see that Herod delivers this magnificent oration. And according to Josephus, it was in the midst of his oration. I love how, how history validates Scripture. Scripture doesn't need validation, but it's wonderful to see that that scripture is proven out. This isn't just a fairy tale. In the middle of his oration, there was this public cry saying, this is not the voice of a man, but of a God. And Josephus wrote that Herod was immediately smitten with violent pains. He scolded his friends for flattering him and accepted his imminent death. He experienced heart pains and a pain in his abdomen, and he died after five days. Immediately, he was smitten. The Bible clarifies what really happened for us. We know the truth here. We have the ultimate objective truth, and it says immediately in verse 23, look down in your Bible, it says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He, he didn't give glory to God for his rule, and God struck him down using natural causes. The pain in the abdomen was probably caused by the Lord giving him a case of worms or parasites or something like that that killed him. And, and I was thinking back about this account and how, why did Herod, why did Josephus write that Herod scolded his friends afterwards? But it's really Herod's fault because Herod should have rebuffed then when they said he was a god. Herod was a Jew after all. And, then, and, and we know from history that he was actually a pious Jew while he was in Jerusalem at least. It reminds me of another account in the Old Testament. And according to Jewish history, it was one that would have been very familiar to Herod and to those in that day. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to share that with you in, in Daniel 4. In Daniel 4, it tells this account of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, this is many, many, many years prior. God continues to work in the same way throughout history. Daniel 4, 29 says, The end of 12 months he was walking, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built? by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. 
while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, now it's written in the first person, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for, and side note, Nebuchadnezzar was making the right conclusion here, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The same time my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Why do I share that story? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God continues to be in control. God continues to reign and rule. Nothing can thwart his plans. No one can rise up against him, against his will. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar, just like King Herod, just like the kingdoms of the earth today, they are as nothing to God. The words from Daniel 2.21 are still true today. It says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He changes times and seasons. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of all the natural world. He changes the times, changes the seasons. He says he removes kings and sets up kings. He's in control of not only nature, but he's in control of all rulers and authorities. It says he gives wisdom to the wise. If, if there's an area where you have gotten wisdom, it's because he's given it to you. And it says knowledge to those who have understanding. He, he, he gives you understanding as well. You see, our God is powerful and He's in control over every area of our lives. And we can trust Him because He's a good God. He's a merciful God. He's working out His good purposes. God's demonstrated in Acts 12 that He is the one who's powerfully in control. He's over natural world. He's over life and death. This passage, I think Luke has given us this passage, and I believe that God has providentially provided this passage for us this morning so that we would have hope and confidence in Him no matter what we are facing, no matter what challenge, no matter what fear you're facing. We can have hope in God as we live out our calling to 
Be disciples of Jesus who are making disciples. There's a couple brief things I want to say in the last couple minutes here as we begin to close. With the main idea, if you just walk away with some things, that God's powerfully in control. He's carrying out his word, but we can see something else. There's, There's one of the things I skipped over before so I could intentionally draw attention to it now. It's one of the ways we can apply this passage to our lives, and it's, this, it's one of the, the second truth that I want us to understand is that God powerfully answers prayers. He's not just in control, but He powerfully answers prayers. Where do I get that from? Well, look down in verse 5 in your Bibles, please. It says, so Peter was kept in prison. Now, now, now notice these words. Luke is being very deliberate. He says, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I wonder what the disciples must have been thinking and, and feeling, but where did they first turn? They didn't turn themselves, they didn't think, okay, how do we, how do we get a jailbreak? Who, who's, who's, who's good with dynamite here? I mean, who can blow the jail doors open? Who can, all right, anybody here good with a crossbow? Who can, who can kill those four squads? So they're not planning that way. They're not, they're not, the weapons of their warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the tearing down of strongholds, and so they use the most powerful weapon they have of prayer. And so they're praying earnestly because they're getting the timing. I'm sure they got the timing of this, that this is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is just like Jesus again. And so they're praying earnestly, God, would you, would you, would you help him? Would you... Would you let him be delivered? Would you maybe lessen his penalty? Whatever it is, they were continuing to pray. And it says they're, they're praying earnestly. They're, they're praying fervently. They were looking to God. They weren't looking at their circumstances. They weren't wallowing in despair. They weren't becoming hopeless. They were looking to God and they were praying fervently. It's a good question for us is where do we turn when difficulties strike where do we first look do we look to ourselves self-sufficiently thinking the answers lie within us or do we say god i'm gonna pray i don't understand this god what are you doing i don't understand this but god i'm gonna pray to you and ask for you to intervene because lord we know that you powerfully answer prayer why did this church pray like this because they had seen god at work already And I would submit to you that each and every one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you have seen God work in your own life as well. And and you're called to reflect on those things so that you can go to God in confidence and say, God, I know you've been at work. You've answered prayers in the past. Lord, I'm praying that you would continue to answer prayer even though I, I can't see how. How do we react when we face dire circumstances? Do we tremble? Do we worry? Do we blog about it? You post it on Facebook. Oh no, what are we going to do about Ebola? What are we going to do about ISIS? What are we going to do about all these things? This is so terrible. Oh my goodness. I'm not minimizing that there can be some real threats. But there is no threat that is greater than God. There is no powerful that's might, no army, no disease, no nothing that's more powerful than God. And so maybe instead when we face dire circumstances and things are beyond our control... I think the primary place we should go is, is to God in prayer. If you're going to see the gospel, maybe you're thinking, Lord, I don't feel like I'm being fruitful right now. I, Lord, I'm afraid. 
of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with my coworkers or friends or schoolmates or, or I'm afraid of telling my neighbors because they're Muslim and maybe they won't like me or reject me or they won't talk to me anymore. I go to God in prayer and say, God, would you please enable me to do what I'm not able to do? Would you please be faithful to your word? You can trust God and pray precisely because he is powerfully in control over all things. Why would you go anywhere else? He is powerfully in control. He can reconcile any relationship, any difficulty. He can enable you to get through any difficulty. Sometimes God rescues us out of difficulties in prayer. Sometimes he leaves us in them. Sometimes God rescues people out of prison and away from death and saves Peter's life. Other times he allows people to be martyred for him. But in both cases, he's no less in control and he's sustaining his people. It just sometimes doesn't look the way we think it should when we pray. But you have to remember he's in control and sometimes we don't understand what's going on. But we can pray together. Pray for each other. Pray for protection, for health, for the strength of this church. Pray that God would preserve and care for us as his people. Pray for the mission he's called us to. Have people over to your house to pray. Might feel a little weird at first, but do it anyway. Apparently, they did that a lot in the New Testament. Church, we need to earnestly pray and have confidence that God will answer our earnest prayers. The early church, they had faith. They looked to God knowing that He was in control. And He carries out His word. And so that's the third and final truth that we see from this passage is that God powerfully carries out His word. I love how the passage ends. And, And Luke writes with irony here. And he's doing that intentionally. He says, he says, look, at, look in your Bibles in verse 24. He says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. You see what Luke's doing here? Herod's word was silenced. You get that? Herod was giving this great oration, and his word was silenced immediately. But whose word is never silenced? That's what Luke's showing. He says, the word of God increased and multiplied. The account that began with Herod seeming to be in control and powerfully threatening the church and leaders, and he executes James and he puts Peter in prison. But by the time this account ends, Luke's showing no, man's not in control. Man's word doesn't stand, God's word stands. God Almighty is ruling and reigning, He's the one who holds the power of life and death. James wasn't killed because God couldn't stop it. He stopped Peter from getting killed. James died by the sword because that was what, the way that he was to glorify God as a martyr. And this account proves that God's both of the death of his servants who are martyred and the rescue of his servants from death. And think about it as well. Remember back in Matthew 20, James and John's mom had come to Jesus and said, could you make them sit at your right and left hand? And, and then Jesus turns to James and John and he asks them, he says, can you drink this cup that I'm about to drink? And James and John both said, yes, we can drink this cup. And so they glorify God as James drank the cup. But you look throughout the ages and throughout church history, 
I was reading Tertullian. He once said to his enemies, we multiply, speaking of Christians, whenever we are mown down by you, the blood of Christians is seed. We multiply whenever we are mown down by you, the blood of Christians is seed. And what happened as a result of James' martyrdom? The word of God continues to increase and spread and they saw that Jesus is worth living for and he's worth dying for. Later, Jerome, he said, the church of Christ has been founded by the shedding of its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdom has crowned it. James died for Jesus. He bore witness for Jesus in his death. Others might be called witness to bear witness of Jesus in their life and still others through hardship, maybe others through death as we've seen in the last few months across the world. But God's the one who's ultimately in control. Amen? No matter what, he's the one who holds our lives. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if you placed your confidence in him for life, you can be assured there is no need to fear. And I want to speak directly to any and all who might be tempted to fear this morning. There is no need to fear. Lay your fears aside. Look up and see the one who is really and truly in control no matter what, he's the ultimate one in control, and he's the one who holds your life. And all those who oppose Jesus will lose. All those who oppose Jesus will lose. That's what we see here. And if you're in Christ, you can be assured and confident that he's in control and he carries out his word. He's over life and death. He controls the material world. He's able to build up armies. He was able to bring down rulers. He's able to establish kingdoms and governments. He's able to take governments down to nothing. Jesus is ruling over all. He's expanding his church despite any kind of opposition. And in the end, neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Herod the Great nor any great person in power today has the last word. God has the last word. He's the one who has the last word. He's proclaimed his word will increase and multiply. So if God is in control over life and death and over the greatest rulers and kingdoms and iron shackles and city gates, can't we trust God to be in control in our lives even when we don't understand? Even if things don't end in a rosy way. Even if it's not what we want or expect. We can trust God and have no need to fear. Well, I want to ask you to stand for a moment and have the band go ahead and come up. I want to sing this song overall in a moment. But before we do it, I also want to ask um, some of the leaders in the church to go ahead and come forward too. And if you are struggling at all with any kind of fear, we want to pray for you. We want to have a time to pray. Maybe you're struggling with fear of failure, relational fears, whatever fear you might be facing, financial fears, fears over world events, whatever those things might be. So we're singing, if you'd like prayer, why don't you go ahead and come up, and maybe you're too embarrassed to do that during, you're fearing, man, I get that.
um, as we're singing. You can come up afterwards too. I'm gonna have them go ahead and stay up here. Even if nobody comes up right now, we'll, we'll just have people pray at the end. So let's look to God in faith, knowing that he is overall. This is a great way to respond too. Lord, I wanna cast aside my fears. Lord, I wanna look to you in faith and hope. So let's do that together.